This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Five, four, three, two, one, zero. Ignition. Major Garrett. Yes, CBS. Yes, hi. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Major Garrett. From the nation's capital. Major Fantastic. It's The Takeout. Major. With CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent. Major, that's nonsense. Major Garrett. And you should know better. Welcome to the very best part of my broadcast week. I'm Major Garrett, host and creator of this amazing program known as The Takeout, where each and every week we are two things. And what are those two things? Relentlessly curious, steadfastly non-ideological. We're going to have a conversation today with someone who works very close with the presumptive Democratic nominee, Joe Biden. Her name is Simone Sanders. She has a new book out. You know, at this program, we love books. Her book is called No, You Shut Up. And Simone, you know, I'm tempted to say, how are you? But in these times, I feel like saying, how have you been all these many years? (laughs) I have been well. You know, I'm healthy. I actually just got a coronavirus test this past uh, weekend, and I'm happy to tell you that I am negative. Excellent, excellent. What do you do for the vice president's campaign? Uh, I have the privilege of serving as a senior advisor for the campaign, which is shorthand for I do it all. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, you know, all of the vice president's advisors advise on a range of issues. Uh, we're very hands on, and so I do a little communications, a little political, uh, some policy. I've been telling the policy team I've earned my policy. Uh, uh, my policy bona fides this year. So I, I do a little bit. And when we were traveling, I traveled a lot with the vice president. Very good. Uh, your book, as we said, is called No, You Shut Up. And I want to begin our conversation with uh, what I've gathered from your previous interviews is what inspired the title of that book. <laughs> it's some cable television on another network. Arden, please play that for the audience. Well, uh, my point of disagreement is that that was an excuse to bring these groups together. The local blogger who got the permit to protest the removal of the Robert E. Lee statue then blew this up. That was an excuse. Look at the and now look at even dead. how they got the permit. And can I finish, Simone? Will you just shut up for a minute and let me finish? Pardon me, sir. You can don't get to tell America me to shut up say, on national and, television. And, and, and so hold on. You, and so then all <laughs> I'm these sorry. Nas- all Under these no circumstances do you get to speak to me in that matter. Can, can, you should exhibit some decorum. Can stay civil. Hold on, guys. Both of you stop for a second. Simone, can Simone and under no circumstances can and Simone hold on a second. You need a reset. So you can shut up. Okay. (laughs) Simone, as you know, that doesn't get played in its totality that often, but I wanted to give the audience a very big look into what that moment was all about. So give my audience the backstory. Who was Ken? Ken Cuccinelli is the former attorney general of Virginia, currently uh, works in the Trump administration. I detail the uh, the story that you just played in the intro to my book. and, you know, Ken Cuccinelli, he called me after. He apologized to me on the phone, which I did appreciate. But, you know, he didn't tell me to shut up in private. He told me to shut up on national television. And so my book is called No, You Shut Up, Speaking Truth to Power and Reclaiming America. Because, Major, I think a lot of folks have been given the proverbial shut up, if you will, uh, throughout their lives, whether it's in the classroom, the boardroom, the office, maybe not on national television, but, you know, it happens. And I think now is the time that folks actually need to speak up and not shut up. So I didn't know when I wrote this that we'd be, you know, uh, in a global pandemic, the country would be gripped with unrest. But I'd like to think that I had a little foresight in knowing what the country would need right now. Do you think there is anything in particular about that exchange that speaks to your femininity or your ethnicity? Uh, Yeah, I think if I was a 35-year-old white man 
Ken Cuccinelli might not have felt so comfortable telling me to shut up on national television. At the time, I think I was uh, 26, 27, maybe 27 years old. So um, young African-American uh, girl for some folks. So absolutely, I, I, I think that played into it. And when you say, no, you shut up, that is about how you have to react in moments like that or how you shouldn't have to deal with moments like that, or maybe both. No, you shut up is about, um, I, in the book I talk about the concept of we. And so actually, no, you shut up um, speaks to this concept of broadening the we. And the preamble to the constitution, you know, it says we the people in order to form a more perfect union. But who is the we? Major, when they wrote it, the me was the we wasn't me. It might have been you. Okay, if you were rich, if you were rich, you would have been the we. But the we was rich white men. Um, and I believe that the concept of we has expanded over the course of history. And we are at a moment where we are trying to broaden that we uh, a little bit more. And so, no, you shut up is about is is really speaking to not how you respond in the moment, because in the moment I didn't even actually tell. Ken Cuccinelli, the first thing wasn't, no, you shut up. The first thing was, hold on, you cannot speak to me that way. But it's really about understanding that there are voices that we need to hear in this inflection point in history and this moment. There are voices that need to be in the room and at the table um, and creating uh, policy and pushing the conversations that we're having. And so that's what it's really about for me. You mentioned being in the room. Uh, there is a theme about former Vice President Biden's campaign that he has a strength and a weakness. And they're related, meaning the strength of longtime advisors who have been with him for years and years and years. Ted Kaufman, Ron Klain, to a certain degree, Anita Dunn. Uh, there are others. And that that's a strength because they know him so well. He knows them so well. But it also might be a weakness because they know each other so well. They finish each other's sentences. They might not see things. Where, from your perspective, do you fit into that inner circle? How comfortable are they with you? And have you had to sort of barge your way in at all? <laughs> well, uh, I, I actually, I think it's very it's surprising for some folks. Um, but when I first sat down with Vice President Biden, our meeting was only supposed to be 30 minutes and I ended up staying and speaking with him for two hours. You know, Vice President Biden, Major, he likes to, <laughs> he likes to talk, he gets into it, he'll tell stories, I'm a chatter. You know, we are a dangerous combination. But I, I say that to say, it felt like I had known him for years. And I did not know Vice President Biden before that conversation, um, before going to work for him. You know, obviously I knew who he was, but I did not have a, a relationship with him. And I think that I have absolutely been able to build a relationship over the course of this campaign. And I'm so lucky to work with amazing colleagues like the folks you just named, folks like uh, Mike Donnellan, Professor mm -hmm, Donnellan, sure, of course. folks uh, at, uh, that for the, for the students that he teaches. And I mean, Bruce Reed. So I, I feel like I've just Steve Rachetti, well. there are lots Steve and Rachetti, lots of them. Yeah. Yes. I feel like I've just General Malley well. Dillon, there's uh, a whole there's a whole cadre. There's a whole cadre of folks. Hey, that is still like the list goes on, Major. <laughs> but you know, I think it is I think it's a testament, frankly, to Vice President Biden, um, that he has broadened out his circle, that he does take counsel from folks that haven't, you know, been with him for the last 30 years. Congressman Richmond. Um, Cedric Richmond, a congressman of Louisiana, former immediate past chair of the Congressional Black Caucus, is not only our campaign co-chair, but one of Vice President Biden's closest advisors. Uh, so we have a good, I would like to argue, a good mix going on of some folks that's been there for a long time and some newer voices. And I do believe that that's how we've been able, we were able to, frankly, capture the nomination. And that's how we're going to be Donald Trump. Are you a direct report to the vice president? Uh, I, I, you work for, I do work for Joe Biden, yes. <laughs> Me, and what I mean by that, because it's an important term of art within the industry, you call and he picks up. Yeah, I mean, look, I think it is, some days it, you know, I had a long, I had some conversations with a couple of reporters last week and they're just, they were very, you know, there's lots of palace intrigue right about now about, you know, who is Vice President Biden spending his time with? Who is he talking to? What are you all discussing? And, uh, you know, while we don't get into the business of detailing um, the former vice president's private conversations, what I what I will say is that uh, it, there is this notion that he may not be listening to some people, that there are some people that do not have his ear. And I would just like to dispel that myth. You know, the the strength of Joe Biden is the fact that he uh, he's a, he is a listener. He has empathy. He uh, is thinking, he's always constantly critically thinking about things and how we can retool them and make them better. 
so he's someone that, you know, takes good counsel, but he's also somebody that knows what he wants, knows the direction that he wants to go. Uh, and he is interested in continuing to build a team of people that will help him get there uh, efficiently and effectively at the same time. And I think that's what we've done. That's the voice of Simone Sanders, senior advisor to former Vice President Joe Biden, the presumptive Democratic nominee. That's the end of segment one of The Takeout this week. Stay tuned for segment two, and we'll talk about who Simone Sanders worked for in 2016. Uh, clue... Bernie Sanders. Back on the other side. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back. You're thoroughly enjoying The Takeout, as you do each and every week on CBSN, on great radio stations around the country, more than 70, and, of course, on Sirius XM, POTUS Channel 124. So great to be there. Simone Sanders is our special guest, senior advisor, Joe Biden for president. Simone, you work for Bernie Sanders in 2016. Not only work for him, you were the youngest national presidential press secretary, as I read it, in American history. (laughs) <laughs> yes, that was me. Uh, I joined Senator Sanders' campaign. I think I was, it was right, I was 25. So that was my first presidential. And I'm very proud of the work that we did in 2016. So there are those within your party and those who are not within the Democratic Party, but who might look at this and say, wait, wait, wait a minute, Bernie Sanders, Joe Biden, uh, Joe Biden would be the embodiment of establishment uh, Democratic approaches in politics. Uh, he voted for the Iraq war. Bernie Sanders didn't. He was uh, open to normalizing trade relations with China. Bernie Sanders was, a, was opposed to that. He was for NAFTA. Joe Biden was. Bernie Sanders was against it. Range of issues and tone and vigor. They would say there's a vast difference between Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden. How do you personally bridge that gap and how have you? Well, look, I'll say this. Um, you know, Senator Sanders, I went to go work for Senator Sanders in 2016 because the, what he was talking about on the, the campaign trail were the kind of conversations that I was having with my friends, frankly. Those were the kind of issues we were discussing. And when I sat down with Senator Sanders, uh, we actually got into an argument, so I didn't think he was going to hire me. Got into an argument about the economy, okay? Senator Sanders, his favorite thing to say is uh, tell someone they have a fundamental misunderstanding. I'm sure you've heard it, Major. I'm sure you've heard it. You know I'm telling the truth. Yes. Um, it's true, it's true. And so Senator Sanders told me I had a fundamental misunderstanding. We reconciled in our conversation. I ended up going to work for him. I went to go work for, I chose to join Vice President Biden's campaign though in in this election because I believe that he correctly diagnosed um, what America was dealing with at the time. And this was, you know, early beginning of 2019. And I sat down with Joe Biden and he told me that he is running for president. Um, He wouldn't be running if, if Donald Trump was not president right now. He said that Charlottesville was an inflection point for him like it was for many people in the country. And he didn't want to sit back and think, what if he would have ran for president? And he told me that we're in the battle for the soul of the nation. Now, I think when he said that, and definitely he repeated it when he announced, he's, he's said it, he's carried this theme throughout our entire campaign. People said that Joe Biden was making a general election argument, that he was kind of missing the moment. Now, more than ever, I think the articulation that we are in a battle for the soul of this nation, we are, need to rebuild the backbone of this country and unite the country is more on point now more than ever. 
Joe Biden correctly diagnosed what was happening in this country before uh, folks believed he knew what he was talking about. I believed what Joe Biden said. I absolutely agreed with him, and that's why I joined his campaign. Let me take you back to the Nevada caucuses. Bernie Sanders wins handily. How discouraged were you at that time about the prospects of Vice President Biden? We weren't by Nevada. We weren't discouraged at all. I mean, uh, I c- spent, coming out of Nevada after having Iowa, New Hampshire, and Nevada. One could argue after after Iowa, we we you know I think the vice president described it as a gut punch. <laughs> I think that is an accurate description of how many of us were feeling. Um, New Hampshire, I think the writing was on the wall for us early, you know, shortly after Iowa, that we were not going to um, be you know top two in New Hampshire or top three even. So if you'll note, if you'll remember, the night of the New Hampshire primary, Vice President Biden flew to South Carolina. And we had a rally in South Carolina and Columbia. Uh, I was there. I then spent the rest of that month in South Carolina. I don't even think I went back to Nevada anymore in between New Hampshire and Nevada. So I say that to say, we were very confident um, in our strategy and in our prospects. It did not, I know it didn't feel like that, for folks in the, at the time, but we absolutely believed that once the majority of folks in this, the base of this party had their say, black voters um, across the South, uh, Latino voters, frankly, um, that Vice President Biden would be victorious. Now we did not win, ha- we did not win Nevada, but we did come in a strong second. We came in, we handily won South Carolina, and that South Carolina momentum carried us uh, into Super Tuesday and beyond, frankly. Uh, up until the pandemic, uh, I would argue, kind of halted this, this the winds that were at our back. But we handily won on Super Tuesday. We won the next Super Tuesday, and we won the Super Tuesday after that. And I think that is attributed to the voters. Um, you know, Vice President Biden entered this race major with a, a, a good amount of goodwill from voters of the Democratic Party. You know, people like Joe Biden. Um, he's a former vice president. They know he stood shoulder to shoulder with President Obama. Uh, they want somebody that can beat Trump. They fit. They they felt like early on that he could beat Trump. That's what you saw reflected in those polls. And I think throughout the primary process, you know, the polls go up and down. You see other candidates come in, they rise. But at the end of the day, um, it was African American voters in South Carolina that were very clear about who they thought uh, could beat Donald Trump. Were very clear about who they wanted as their nominee. And we like to say that South Carolina chooses president. They definitely choose Democratic nominees, and right. we believe they choose president. You talked about the former vice president speaking to you many, many months ago about this campaign being about the soul of the country that is related to character. Oftentimes, presidential elections get simplified. It's either a choice or a policy or character. Is this a character presidential campaign as far as you're concerned? I, I think it's a character, but it's also a we th- I truly believe that this campaign is a referendum on Donald Trump. You know, uh, what we are currently experiencing in this country, what we're collectively living through, um, this unrest is not happening in a vacuum. You know, the killing of George Floyd, of Breonna Taylor, of Ahmaud Arbery, those viral videos were merely the tipping point for a lot of folks in America because we're in the midst of a global pandemic. You know, more than 111,000 uh, deaths due to the coronavirus, more than 42 million people unemployed. Um, the country is, quote unquote, opening back up in places, but we still don't have widespread testing. There is, um, you know, business owners, uh, you know, Vice President Biden is, is in Philadelphia, or pardon me, Delaware County this week, doing an event with business owners where he will talk about um, and hear from business owners about the, you know, kind of their struggles in reopening, what they feel they are not getting from the the guidance they're not getting from the federal government, um, and kind of what does reopening uh, not only safely, but in a sustainable way so businesses can thrive looks like. What would a Biden administration do? And these are real questions that the American people have. Many of those folks that are jobless, Major, many of the people who have died from the pandemic are African-American and Latino voters. You know, healthcare is still the top issue for folks in this country, young people included. In the more recent Harvard polling, the number one issue is, uh, the number one issue is the economy, the number two issue is healthcare, specifically access to healthcare. So I would say that Donald Trump's character has directly contributed to the, the lives that American people are living right now. Had he acted earlier, to mitigate and curb the and stem the effects and response to the coronavirus to the pandemic, um, COVID nineteen. There was a Columbia University study that says we could have we maybe could have saved at least thirty six thousand lives. So there are real implications for the president's 
character and conduct as it relates to policy and the lives that the American people live every single day. And, you know, those are things that we're hearing from folks on the campaign trail. In military strategy and in politics, there is a cautionary tale about trying to win the last war and fighting the last war, not the one that's in front of you. So put simply, is the path for Vice President Biden through Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Michigan, the last war or Georgia, Texas and Arizona? Well, I, we actually don't think it's an either or major. We have to do it all. And so we have set out our path to victory. You know, our path to 270 includes places we have to protect. Those are places we won in 2016, like Nevada and Minnesota, places we do have to win back. That does include, you know, a Michigan, a Wisconsin, a Pennsylvania, but it also means like a Florida. Uh, we have to, doesn't mean we have to win all of those places, but we have to win in some of them. And then there's um, places that we need to expand. And we believe that Arizona is a battleground state for the first time in this uh, you know, presidential process. We believe Texas is an expansion state. We believe Georgia is an expansion state. Turnout in Georgia, amidst all of the, the, the issues that, they, they, that voters encountered at the polls, um, what was it, last week, um, turnout in Georgia was up from 2016. More than 1.1 million people voted early in Georgia. And that, on top of the 1.1 million people that voted early, people who actually showed up at the polls and stayed in line until midnight, something they should not, to be frank, have had to do. It was unacceptable what happened in Georgia. And we have to uh, fix those issues in advance of November. Uh, but turnout was up. So we feel good about our chances, Major. And there are many paths to two sets. There's not just one narrow path. There's many paths to get there. That's the voice of Simone Sanders, senior advisor to former Vice President Biden. I'm Major Garrett. You are enjoying the takeout back for segment three in just a second. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back. Working from home continuously, as are most of you, those of you who aren't on the front lines or reopening your small business in any way, shape, or form. We wish you the very best. Stay safe. Be well. But we're still working from home. That's why you got all this sort of stuff behind me. Simone Sanders is our special guest, senior advisor, Biden for president. So I want to play you a soundbite from a recent interview that President Trump had with Harris Faulkner of Fox News. It talks about his record for and on behalf of African Americans. I think I've done more for the black community than any other president. And let's take a pass on Abraham Lincoln because he did good, although it's always questionable. You know, in other words, the end result. Well, we are free, Mr. President. But we he are did free. pretty well. You understand what I mean. <laughs> yeah, no, so I'm going to take a pass on a, a honest Abe. Uh, Simone, your reaction. <laughs> you know, I think the president likes to speak in broad generalities and platitudes um, that oftentimes are just not true. You know, when uh, the president, I think it was a couple weeks ago, he went to the podium, I believe he was in the Rose Garden and touted the job numbers and said the country is reopening. He's touting the job numbers. He said that George Floyd is looking down right now and he's probably, and he put words in George Floyd's mouth. The audacity for Donald Trump to put any words in George Floyd's mouth except the last words that he uttered, I cannot breathe if he called out for his mother, is ridiculous, is, 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 is disastrous and it's just beyond me. So. The reality is that Donald Trump uh, does not have, he can't name specific things that he's done for the African-American community. If he could, if he had specifics, he'd name them. Uh, he doesn't have specifics, Major. So that's, those are just the, the facts right there. I really think that the Trump campaign and the administration like to talk a lot about criminal justice reform, for example, mm -hmm. uh, but you know, the First Step Act, but the administration has yet to allocate one penny from their budget to fund the First Step Act. And so your budget speaks to what your priorities are. And right. it is clear that that is not a priority. Because I'm a recipient of things that the Trump campaign puts out, as are many people, I would say they would mention, I don't speak on their behalf, but I've gotten their emails and I've talked to them. <laughs> they would say the First Step Act. They would say increases in funding for historically black colleges and universities. They would say- and, Alma, and I would argue that Alma Adams would correct the president and say that was her bill. All he did was sign it, that the Trump administration was not- uh, Alma Adams of North Carolina, that the Trump administration was not involved in the crafting of the increased funding for historically black colleges and universities. So like we can't, the, what we have to do in this campaign, and it's something that it's, um, you know, it's, it's something we've been, you know, our campaign has been doing from the beginning, is we have to push back on these blanketed assertions that come from the Trump administration, while also 
you know, look forward, be forward looking about what Vice President Biden's plans for America are, what his bold vision is, and ensuring that we're telling people and underscoring what it is Joe Biden has said he'll do. But I mean, like HBCU funding, all my Adams had to tweet at the president and say, hold on now, that was my bill. So, uh, <laughs> you know. Does it matter that he signed it and, it, and it's become real? Uh, yes, it does matter. Look, it, it's one thing to say, this is the bill that I signed. It's another thing to say, this is what I've championed and what I've done. And he's conflating a signing of the bill is what he's championed. You know, uh, President Obama and Vice President Biden, they can take credit for the Affordable Care Act because not only did President Obama signed it, he championed it, he pushed it. Like, you know, Vice President Biden went down and helped get the votes. Like there was a concerted effort on the administration's part, on the Obama-Biden administration's part to get healthcare passed. There was no concerted effort on the Trump administration's part to get funding for historical black colleges and universities. To round, out, to round out this conversation, the one other thing that the Trump campaign often points to is opportunity zones, and they are often backed up by Tim Scott, African-American senator from South Carolina, Republican. Uh, what is your reaction to that touted benefit for African-Americans in our country? Point one and point two, would, if elected, Joe Biden continue, expand or contract opportunity zones? Well, I think, I mean, as you know, Major, I think there are people on, uh, you know, one side of the Opportunity Zone fight that are like, these are great. And then there are other folks that are like, hmm, I don't know if Opportunity Zones have done what people think they've done. This is what Vice President Biden would do. We put out a plan for Black America. Folks can find it at JoeBiden.com backslash black, slash black America. And it is, a, it is a plan that has a wealth creation agenda in terms of housing, small business, uh, uh, it, it, a credit, like we, we, we talk about adjusting the credit reporting system, but we also address inequities as it relates to healthcare, as it relates to the criminal justice system. Um, so I encourage people to, to, to read that plan, education. Vice President Biden has talked about the need for uh, good quality education even before uh, young people get to kindergarten. So that means pre-K on through, uh, at this point, college, because he's talked about making public colleges and universities four-year institutions tuition-free for students whose families um, make up to $125,000 a year. So there is a, a, a concerted effort on the Biden, not only the Biden campaign's part, but Vice President Biden's part to ensure that we are addressing systemic issues in communities in a tangible way that will create, um, as our friend Elizabeth Warren likes to say, structural change. Are you prepared to guarantee that Joe Biden will outperform Hillary Clinton with African-American voters in 2020? <laughs> I am prepared to get, Major, what I'm prepared to guarantee is that Joe Biden will actively fight for the votes of African-American voters, Latino voters, young people, um, women, uh, men, some white voters. Okay, we need white votes. Let's just be clear. He is going to fight for every vote in this country. Um, and that is the promise that we make. To, that is to not an unimportant America. metric, though, is it? Uh, to uh, to exceed voters? yes to to exceed what Hillary no. Clinton did there was a, there it's was a problem a, there. It's not an unimportant metric to exceed what Secretary Clinton did. I mean, but you know the 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 assertion that she didn't do much. I don't that, that some people, not you, but that some folks um, have you know made throughout the course of even before this primary since 2016. I just don't think is 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 true. Like the Clinton campaign did do uh, a huge amount of work in earning the African-American vote. What I can, I can just tell you about, because I wasn't on the inside of that Clinton operation, I can tell you what we're planning to do. Um, this path of 270 where I name-checked all of these different constituencies and folks that make up our coalition, um, that coalition includes African-American men, Latino men, Obama-Trump voters, blue-collar workers as well. We are not taking a cookie-cutter approach major. The way we get to 270 is we have to go state by state, battleground by battleground. So that means what we do in uh, Michigan is a little bit, is different, not even a little bit, it's definitely different from what we do in Arizona. In Arizona, we have to run up the numbers of the Latino vote. Um, in Maricopa County, for the first time in a decade, went blue in a federal election uh, in 2018. So there is groundwork that was laid there. Mark Kelly, uh, the Senate candidate, has done really great work. We plan on partnering with him. In Michigan, uh, we, we've got that quote-unquote woman from Michigan, uh, Gretchen Whitmer and Lieutenant Governor Gilchrist, who have been doing amazing work. Uh, we will have folks on the ground in every battleground state before the end of this month in June. And I'll tell you, in Detroit, for example, where Detroit, Wayne County is yep. the county that Detroit sits in, a 1% increase of voters in Wayne County, African-American voters, would have accounted for all of the votes in 2016, would have accounted for all of the votes that Secretary Clinton lost Michigan by. 
even though the majority of voters in Michigan are white voters. And so our strategy for Michigan is, yes, absolutely, we have to talk to suburban um, voters. We have to talk, we have to engage, uh, you know, blue-collar workers, non-college educated voters, college educated voters, but we also have to engage African-American voters. We have to t speak specifically to folks in Wayne County. And so our strategy is dynamic. It is uh, tailored to specifically what state we're talking about because you know we get to Florida it's a whole nother game major very very different game so that is how we are thinking about uh, our race and getting to 270. Do you believe Joe Biden is ahead by as much as the polls currently suggest? You know I I, I do not get excited by these poll majors like we can't because um, if the the polling only reflects the work that we do so I believe that we are doing the work and we are going to continue to do the work between now and November. Is the working assumption of the Biden campaign that no matter what the polls say, you're six points down? It, it need, well, I don't know if six points down is what, is what we're working with, but no matter what the polls say, we have to do the work. Our campaign manager, General Mally Dillon, always tells us that we can do hard things. This election is a hard thing. It's not gonna be easy to beat Donald Trump. We are not running as though it's going to be easy. We are running like this is going to and is a fight and it's a fight that we believe that we'll win, but we gotta do the work to win the fight. So we are focused on doing the work. Because incumbents are odds on favorites. Well, one could argue, I mean, look, we are doing, by doing the work major, we are growing our base. We are ensuring that we are not taking a cookie cutter approach to our engagement across the country. I can't tell you what Trump campaign is doing, but it don't look like they're getting new voters major. It doesn't look like it to me. But, you know, I, I'm open to be proven wrong, but I don't anticipate it. That's the voice of Simone Sanders, our very special guest, senior advisor to the vice president, Joe Biden's presidential campaign. Stay tuned for segment four, where we will talk about the Trump campaign's ever increasing allegation that Joe Biden is, quote unquote, out of it. Stay tuned. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Simone Sanders, senior advisor to Joe Biden's presidential campaign. President says he's out of it. Is he? Oh, Major. No, Vice President Biden is not out of it. It's, if he were sitting here, he'd tell you, just watch me. He'd say he can't wait to meet Donald Trump on the debate stage um, because it, it, it will truly be no contest. Look, I, I, I don't know what the Trump campaign strategy here is, but they have tried to throw a number of a salacious conspiracy theories um, onto and project them onto the vice president. First, it was Ukraine um, and and the vice president's son, and we did that for a long time. And that how somehow he's corrupt, and now it is this idea that oh somehow he's lost a step. Uh, vice President Biden is <laughs> is out is campaigning. I mean, when he was at home, like most of America, uh, we were holding virtual events daily. He was doing roundtables, virtual rope lines. He was doing interviews. It, that never stopped. So we just encourage the, the Trump campaign to, you know, you know, we'll see you on the battlefield and we can't wait to see you at the debate. Some Republicans think President Trump is out of it. I mean, again, some some people say perhaps he's projecting. Uh, that's what he maybe he's projecting. Maybe that's how Donald Trump specifically feels about himself. I don't know. I'm not going to pontificate about that. What I'm going to say is that I know for a fact um, that Joe Biden is up to this task and up to this challenge. He said it himself. He said if he wasn't, he wouldn't be in this race. And I think that he has demonstrated time and time again that he can rise to the occasion when Donald Trump is not. And the most recent example of that is while the country was in the heart of, was in the, was in the thick of the unrest, in the thick of the protests um, that were happening across this country, it was Joe Biden that Friday that came out with a very strong statement. Um, he went live, direct to camera, spoke to the pain that people were feeling in America, but also gave us a roadmap forward. He then came out again a couple days later in Philadelphia and gave a presidential address. Donald Trump, on the other hand, went to the Rose Garden in the, you know, at the in the heart, at the thick of the unrest, and on that Friday, and didn't talk about George Floyd. I'll, I'll note, as the Trump campaign people like to correct me, he talked about him later, but did not speak about George Floyd. Didn't speak about what was happening in Minneapolis or across this country. He made some statement about Hong Kong. And then on Monday, Donald Trump took to the podium and said he is the president of law and order, said that he is an ally of peaceful protesters, while on a split screen, peaceful protesters being cleared with tear gas, it seems, so that the president could do a photo op in front of St. John's Church outside of the White House. 
And so he has yet to rise to the occasion of leadership uh, in this country. Every time he is faced with this test, he fails it. But where Donald Trump will not lead, Joe Biden has stepped into um, the fold and he is ready to be president. You, you mentioned the debate stage. Many in the Trump campaign tell me they also can't wait for it and predict that the president will eat Joe Biden alive on the debate stage. <laughs> I mean, did they watch the debates in 2016? I don't think that Donald Trump was necessarily dynamic. But again, we look forward to the debates. We really do. But, but they think, to their point, that... The former vice president has lost a step, can't hang with the president in terms of vigor or intensity or energy. And they've also said, and I want to get your reaction to this, that all Biden events should be carried in their totality by the cable network so people can actually see from the Trump campaign's point of view how incapable the former vice president is carrying on an event and remembering his lines and saying them with some degree of credibility. That's what they say, not me. It is so ridiculous that the Trump campaign continues to make these kind of assertions and that people repeat them when it was the president that stood in the White House in the White House and suggested that the American people ingest bleach to clear themselves and rid themselves of the coronavirus. So of COVID-19. So let, let's just let's just Put, let's just put some perspective on this, okay? Uh, Joe Biden has been an elected official uh, for more than 40 years. He is a former United States Senator. Let's just be clear, he started off as a county council, a former United States Senator, a former Vice President of the United States of America, uh, and now the presumptive Democratic nominee. He is more than up for this challenge. He is ready for this task of being president. And Donald Trump reminds us every single day uh, that he himself is not, with his erratic tweets, um, with the, the the way that he rambles on in front of the cameras whenever they, they find their way into the White House. So I'm just not going to even, uh, there there is no comparison here. But I am not going to question the president's, the president's mental acuity or ability. I am just going to say we welcome and cannot wait to see him on the debate stage. You've talked about this moment as an inflection point. For those who say, is Joe Biden the right, the right person for this time, considering his authorship and central legislative role behind the crime bill of 1994, which some have said, though well-intentioned, intensified an already existing climate or atmosphere of mass incarceration in our country? So, so two things. One, Vice President Biden correctly diagnosed this moment that we're in well before uh, many people many people could articulate it themselves. So I would argue, yes, he is the right person for this moment because he he knew what this was before many people knew what it was. He, he called it out. We are in a battle to restore the soul of this nation. But secondly, you know, if we're going to talk about the crime bill, I think we have to we, we have to put it in context. The context was that uh, crime was rising, that many folks across the country, mayors, uh, African-American leaders, the Congressional Black Caucus at the time, they, not everyone in the caucus, because I, I, know, I know if Bobby Scott were here, he'd tell you he didn't support. Um, but there were the overwhelming majority of African-American leaders in this country um, wanted, wanted the crime bill. The crime bill had a lot of stuff in it, right? It had the Violence Against Women Act. It had an assault weapons ban. The, the last time assault weapons were banned in this country is because Joe Biden uh, wrote that into the crime bill. But it also, uh, it also had uh, funding for uh, midnight basketball programs, things that Republicans at the time called, you know, soft. Like, what, what is this going to do? They had community-oriented programming. They had funding for uh, community policing. And those things are things, the, the latter, the, you know, the community-oriented programming. Republicans cut that out of the bill. Uh, cut that out of the legislation years shortly after the bill was passed. And we never saw Vice President Biden's um, you know, true vision of policing in America come to pass. The, one other thing within that crime bill, though, that I think is very important for this moment, Major, pattern of practice investigations. The ability to go in and investigate police departments for misconduct in this country, currently the only mechanism we have to hold rogue police departments accountable was a mechanism that was written into the crime bill. In early on in the 90s was written into the crime bill. And so Vice President Biden has called for in his current plan for expanding pattern of practice investigations to include prosecutors offices to uh, because prosecutors are sometimes also the some of the worst offenders to to uh, create a task force on prosecutorial discretion 
to ensure that the Department of Justice, um, the Civil Rights Division, had to have the resources that they need to conduct those pattern and practice investigations, um, to give subpoena power to the Department of Justice for those investigations. They currently don't have subpoena power. A number of the measures that the Democrats have put forward in their, the bill, the House bill, uh, last week, Vice President Biden supports a ban on chokeholds, again, a national database, a number of these things. So I would argue that he has actually been really clear um, since the 94 crime bill about what it is he believes and the vision where we need to take this country. And he has, since the beginning of this campaign, articulated um, you know, what he is going to do to further reform the criminal justice system. And to the point you made about the debate about that 1994 crime bill, on this program two weeks ago, Karen Bass, the current chair of the Congressional Black Caucus, told us she was a community activist at that time, opposed the crime bill because she feared it would create mass incarceration, but knew many in her community who were in favor of it, who were alarmed and fearful of crime. And their communities were, in her words, I don't want to speak for her, if not crying out, asking for something that was responsive to these needs. So you're not the only one who has said that on this program. Karen Bass said it just a couple of weeks ago. Simone Sanders, it's been a great pleasure for our radio audience. We have to depart now, but for those of you watching on CBSN, stay with us. And on the podcast platforms, the Takeout Outtake Especial is next. CBS News. This is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome to your Takeout Outtake Especial. I'm Major Garrett. Our special guest, Simone Sanders, senior advisor to Biden for President campaign. That would be Joe Biden, former vice president. Uh, If you have been listening all along, you know that Simone is an African-American woman. Uh, She has her hair cropped tightly. She is from Nebraska. So, Simone, I want to ask you, uh, in your life, did your parents have the talk with you? And for those in my audience who may still not know what we're talking about, tell them what it is. Uh, the talk, uh, and I'm using quotes for, for folks who are listening, the, the talk is a conversation many African-American parents or people, frankly, that have African-American children and may not be African-American themselves, have to have, uh, unfortunately, with their children, um, their sons and their daughters, about what to do when you encounter the police um, to keep, you know, if, they're, if they pull you over, keep your hands on the wheel. Don't talk back. Don't make sudden movements. Uh, you know, just turn over your license because the goal is for you to get home. Uh, I, have, I have two older brothers who I have witnessed them having that talk. I have had the talk. I have a younger sister. She has had the talk. Uh, and in my book, I tell a story about that I, that I told to Senator Sanders about how when I was in college, uh, I was on my way to the library one night leaving my parents' house and I get pulled over uh, and I, one of my taillights is out. They run my license and they tell me that I actually have a warrant out for my arrest. And I'm like, a warrant? Uh, and it's a bench warrant. Bench warrants are issued when you have unpaid um, tickets. I had unpaid tickets and they issued a bench warrant in my name because I had tickets that I had just paid. I had never been pulled over before. I asked the officer if I could write a check, if I can like, do this on Monday. And he's like, oh no, we have to take you to jail. And the officers and take me out of my vehicle. They handcuff me. They put me in the police cruiser. They do wait until um, my they they wait until my roommate can come and grab my car and they take me to jail. When I pull into the stall uh, for folks who have never been in jail, there's only one person allowed, one car allowed in the stall at the time. They don't want um, the folks they've arrested mixing and mingling. When they take me out of the car. Um, I'm waiting at the door to be buzzed in and they tell me that they have found my marijuana and I am confused because I did not have any marijuana on my person. I, we then go into the police precinct and for about 25, 30 minutes, the officers are pressuring me to, to say that this is my marijuana. And they're telling me like, they're putting pressure on me to say that, like to, to, to cop to the, the, the charge of having a possession of marijuana. I. I, I couldn't believe it. At the time, I worked at the mayor's office. Um, I knew my city councilman really well. I talk about it in my book how we, I grew up in a close-knit African-American community. And so I asked for my phone call. And my phone call was to my father. And I asked him to call uh, the city councilman all three-way and tell him that I was in jail. They tried to make me cop to a marijuana plea. They arrested me. And I would like someone to come down here because it's an agreement. You know, my privilege protected me in that moment. No one cared, like the officer, like no one cared that I worked at the mayor's office. They didn't care. They didn't care what school I went to. Like 
none, none of that. But my privilege of my ability being able to call and someone to come down and advocate for me protected me in that moment. Everyone doesn't have that privilege. And so I, I would just say the issues of, I mean, currently we're having a conversation about, you know, overreaction and over responses. Um, if, of police departments and the disproportionate uh, ways in which black and brown people in this country die in police custody and or are killed by police officers. And it's a real fear that, that, that folks have. I mean, when I was a Harvard fellow, I was arrested at the airport for like, they I was literally arrested at the airport. 10 officers came, they put a knee in my back and handcuffed me. And for what? all I said, oh, well, because my bag wasn't, was extended major and um, the TSA agent, I would not step out of line to close my bag up. And so they called the police. So we have officers responding for things that they, we don't need officers to respond to, which is what Vice President Biden has talked about. Like there is, there, we are using nine, there are people in America who are using 911 um, when they, sometimes it's just that they need to mind their own business. If we're talking about Christian Cooper and in the, in the bird park, like the, you know, Amy Cooper had no business threatening Christian Cooper with the police, um, saying she was going to call the police and tell them an African-American man is harassing her when all he asked her to do was put her dog on a leash. So we are calling the police in this country um, for things that we actually don't need the police for. So there's just a, we, there's just a, a, a rethinking that we need to do um, in this country. And I'm glad we're currently having the conversation. So one of the things we do in this fun and games part of the program is we ask three questions. It's been asked of every single guest we have. So take them in whatever order you prefer. Most influential book in your life, your favorite movie or one of your all-time favorite movies. And if you're going to indulge yourself musically, what kind of artist or genre are you most likely to listen to? Uh, if I'm going to indulge myself musically, well, first I'm going to turn on the Savage Beyonce remix, uh, Meg Thee Stallion. But then I'm going to turn on some J. Cole. Uh, my favorite movie, uh, right? And what is my favorite movie? You know, I'm a, I'm a classic, The Lion King. The Lion King is still a classic. I love it. Not this new Lion King. I'm talking about the old school animation came out in 1996, 97. Uh, my favorite book at the moment, mine. Right, uh, of course. You shut up, yes. Of course, but, uh, but we ask that in terms of books that have had an influence on you, that you read and, and had a different perspective about yourself, about life, or your path forward, if there's anything that falls into oh, that category. Ibram X. Kendi's book, um, I believe it is, it is out right now, and oh my goodness, his, I feel terrible because his name is escaping me. It's on my other bookshelf, but I, I love Dr. Kendi. I think he is amazing. He talks a lot and, he, and teaches a lot about how to be an anti-racist. He's a professor um, at American. He, he, he is just brilliant. So I encourage people to, you know, buy anything he writes. And for those in my audience who want to be better at this conversation, who are white, who are wondering, have I grown up with privilege and not even understood it? What would you tell them to either help them have a conversation better or make them feel perhaps differently about this moment? Look, I, what I would tell them is this. There are people in this country who do not know what it feels like to go through the world um, and understand that they are different, the, to be constantly reminded that they are an other. But there are people in this world who are African-American, who are Latino, who are Asian-American, Pacific Islander, who are trans, who are LGBT. There are people in this world that know what that, that every single day when they leave the house, they are reminded that they are other. Every single day when I leave the house, I'm reminded that I'm a a black woman in America, a bald black woman. And people make assumptions about me based on what I look like, about what I know, what I believe, um, where I went to school. Um, they make assumptions about me based on what I look like before I've even said a word. And so I, wouldn't, I would encourage um, you know, white people who are interested in having this conversation and, and, and being better to just think about, like, do you, are you reminded when you leave the house every day that you are a white person? Probably not, Pro probably not. And, and understanding that there are people when they leave their house every single day, they are reminded that they are black, they are reminded that they are Latino, they are reminded that they are a person of color. Um, and how that, how would you feel if every single time you walked into a room, every single time you showed up somewhere, someone was constantly reminding you that about the color of your skin and what, and what, and making assumptions about what that means about what you can and cannot do. And I, and I think just, you know, that understanding uh, will help people think a little bit more critically and be better accomplices, as I like to say, because I don't want any more allies. I want accomplices, Major, because accomplices go down with you. Allies are over there standing there talking about they had an alibi. I want an accomplice in the work. 
Simone Sanders, understanding the difference between allies and accomplices. I'm glad you added that. Thanks very much. It's been a pleasure. We'll see you down the road. Thank you. The Takeout is produced by Arden Fari, Jamie Benson, Sarah Cook, Ellie Watson, Zoe Poindexter, and Jake Rosen. CBSN production by Eric Susanen, Grace Seegers, and Daniel Peebles. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Takeout Podcast. That's at Takeout Podcast. And for more, go to takeoutpodcast.com. The Takeout is a production of CBS Audio. If you like The Takeout, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary and it's not boring. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. I'm going to be your financial coach, someone who brings common sense and an insider's perspective on how to manage your money and your emotions. And I promise we are going to have a little bit of fun along the way. Have a question from retirement to career changes to college funding? Just send us an email at askjill at jillonmoney.com. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app. It was the biggest scandal in pop music. The stars of Milli Vanilli, the Grammy-winning multi-platinum R&B phenomenon, were exposed as frauds. But none of this was their idea. So whose idea was it? Enter German music producer Frank Farian. He saw the success of acts like Michael Jackson and Prince, and he wanted in, no matter the cost. So he devised the perfect pop heist. Two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? They couldn't sing. But Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies and takes a never-before-heard look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when the truth came out, Rob and Fab were the only ones who got burned. Looking back now, it's hard not to wonder, why did everyone blame them and not the man pulling the strings? Follow Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.